Let's uh, take our Bibles, please, and open to uh, Ruth chapter 2. Um, it's, uh, it's me tonight, not Pastor Fisher. Pastor Fisher had a very busy day uh, with his family. With uh, Harry had uh, an appointment with the ear, nose, and throat specialist and, um, this afternoon, and so it was like um, just all hands on deck. Um, so a little bit of a change tonight, uh, but it's the same Bible, uh, same book of Ruth, chapter 2. Uh, I'd like to read uh, from verse 1 to verse 18 uh, for our reading tonight. Luke, chap- uh, Luke, Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean with thee and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Glean, uh, go not to glean in another field. Neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go under the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband. And how thou hast left thy father and thy mother, and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knowest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and give a, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favour in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me, and for that and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thy handmaidens. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime after thou come hither, after, at mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and drip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and, and she did eat, and was sufficed and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them, that she may glean them and and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out what was gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, Verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that had, had reserved after she was sufficed. All right, let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless our Bible study this evening. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you with uh, thankful hearts. Thank you for the uh, privilege of prayer, and uh, we thank you for the privilege of uh, opening up the scriptures. Uh, Lord, the... Uh, privilege of speaking to you and then to have you speaking to us. Uh, Lord, we give you our praises this evening. Uh, We also just commit our way to you. We pray 
that you might lead us and guide us through the scriptures. Lord, help us to benefit from this portion. And Lord, we pray that the, the things which are here for us to learn this evening, I pray that you'd open our eyes and help us to see. And we pray that your word would do its work in our life. Uh, sanctify us through thy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we were looking at the uh, first three verses of chapter 2, and the message came through loud and clear. Uh, it was about the providence of God. Providence being, and uh, this is the definition Pastor Brendan uh, provided last week, the hand of God at work in our world and in our lives. And on the surface, it looked like it was just a coincidence that uh, Ruth would arrive at the field that belonged to Boaz and there'd be this chance meeting. But it wasn't a coincidence, it was providence. It wasn't a quirk of fate, it was the hand of God. Verse 3 says that Ruth just so happened to come to this particular part of the field, but it wasn't an accident. She, her steps were guided by the Lord. Proverbs 3.6 says, In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Uh, I being in the way the Lord led me was the joyful testimony of Abraham's servant, Genesis 24, verse 27. And uh, yes, God's providential working in our lives is a delightful thing, but it can also be a mystery. God is constantly working all things together for us, Romans 8, 28 tells us. He does that to accomplish his wise, wise purposes, which are always good for us. The thing is, we don't always see how it's good at the time and we don't, don't always understand why he has to do it this way. And so we pray and we seek the Lord's will and we make decisions and sometimes we make mistakes. But it is God who is in control over all things, all circumstances, all events and guides his children by his gracious providence. Last week, Pastor Brendan highlighted four things about God's providence. They're worth repeating. First of all, God's providence includes difficulties and hindrances. It includes difficulties, things that don't make sense to us, things which are hard for us to comprehend. And as I thought about that, I was reminded of that uh, hymn by William Cowper. I put the words on the back of the sheet, just on the left-hand side there. God moves in mysterious ways. It's a, it's a hymn about the providence of God. It's one of those hymns which tells the story all the way through. Okay, if you just take one verse, it's good on its own, but it doesn't tell the whole story. This is profound theology and insight here by a, uh, a gifted poet. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Can you see footsteps in the sea? No, you can't. That's the point. We can't always trace what God's doing. Deep in unfathomable, unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. That's uh, just a wonderful, uh, wonderful outline of God's providential workings and our uh, helpful counsel for us. Secondly, God's providence doesn't eliminate human responsibility. We've still got to do our part. Trust God with the rest. Thirdly, God's providence is most often accomplished through ordinary means. And then fourthly, God often implements smaller, not provinces, providences. Uh, to accomplish bigger plans. We have this uh, quite remarkable and spectacular vision in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel sees the providential workings of God depicted by a throne of God in the firmament and it's moving here and there with wheels within wheels going here, there and everywhere according to the will of God. It's very mysterious. We can't explain the workings of God but by faith we believe and trust the Lord. And the Bible says the just shall live by faith. It means that each day we 
trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not to our own understanding in all our ways. We acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. We must believe that God in his providence is in control of all things. He's in control of the world. He's in control of our lives. So last week, verse 1 to 3, we saw the providence of God. It's a doctrine to be believed. But tonight we come to verses uh, 4 through 17. Uh, And tonight we're looking at the grace of God, which is a virtue to be adored. Boaz is the main character in these verses. He's involved in three conversations. First of all, verse 4 to 7, we see Boaz and the harvesters. Verses uh, 8 to 14, Boaz and Ruth. And then thirdly, Boaz and the harvesters again, verses 15 to 17. Thereabouts. When Ruth set about in the morning to go and glean in the fields, she was looking for someone to show her grace. Look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite has said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. I'm looking for someone who will be gracious to me and allow me to, to, uh, to glean in his field. Look at verse 10. And she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground before Boaz and said, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I'm a stranger? Verse 13. Then she said, let me continue to find favour in those, grace in those, same Hebrew word, translated grace. If you want a definition, you can scribble this down. Perhaps I should have done it for you, but you can write it down. It's not that long. Grace is favour bestowed on someone who doesn't deserve it and can't earn it. Grace is favour bestowed upon someone who doesn't deserve it and can't earn it. And that was... Ruth, she was a woman, she was uh, a poor widow, she was an alien Okay, in that land, she was a foreigner, she had no claims on anyone, she was on the very, very lowest rung of the social ladder, she was a woman in need of grace. And God's grace was channeled to Ruth through this man Boaz in a major way. Boaz was a channel of God's grace. We're introduced to him in verse 4 where we read his first words. First words of Boaz we get. The Lord be with thee, he says to his employees, the reapers. This is the only time this particular form of greeting is found in the Bible. Normally the Jewish people, the Israeli people would say to each other, Shalom, peace be with you. But Boaz both greeted and blessed His aim was to encourage his workers, that the Lord was present with them, blessing them in their work. And behind that, I think, is the Lord's oft-repeated expression of Israel's well-being when he says, you know, I am with you, I am with you. And this is what Boaz reminds the people of. There's warmth here. There's thankfulness in this greeting. At the outset, the very outset, we see that Boaz, yes, is a virtuous man. And his speech from beginning all the way through the end is characterized by grace. Let's remember that the book of Ruth takes place in the historic period of the book of Judges. And if if we only knew from the book of Judges what those days were like, we might think there's, you know, there's not a righteous man left in the world at that time. But there were people like Boaz who knew the Lord and sought to obey his will. And it's good to know that God has his people even in the darkest of places and the worst of times. And Boaz was concerned about his workers and he wanted them to enjoy the blessing of God. And no sooner had Boaz arrived and greeted his workers that he cast his eye on this stranger in his field. And it was a lovely stranger at that. Verse 5, Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? Um, I'm not sure of the tone of his voice. Um, But I, I get the impression that this was love at first sight for Boaz. It does happen. 
from this moment onwards, from this moment onwards, Boaz, who is a, he's a very wealthy man, okay? He has a tremendous interest in his business enterprises, uh, except for the rest of this book, he has no interest in his business enterprise. His only interest is in Ruth. Total. Verse 11 indicates that Boaz had already heard about Ruth. Uh, hers was an interesting story and she had a great testimony. And that registered with him. Uh, she was certainly an eligible young woman. Ver chapter 3 verse 10 tells us, and Boaz acknowledges this, that she is the kind of lady that all the young men would be interested in, whether they are poor or rich. Now, poor guys are interested in anyone. Rich ones can be a bit more fussy. Okay? But she was the sort of girl that even the rich guys would take an interest in. Now again, we marvel at the overruling providence of God. The Lord led Ruth just to that field that was owned by Boaz, but also the Lord led Boaz to arrive at the field that morning. He arrives at work just at that moment when Ruth is there. Now, it could have been that when Boaz arrived, Ruth could have been in a different field. Boaz had plenty. He was a, he was a rich man. Uh, he was a, verse 1 tells us, a mighty man of wealth. Verse 7, the supervisor guy says, well, she said, I pray you, let me glean and go, gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And so she came and hath continued even from the evening until now that she tarried a little in the house. In other words, the reaper guy says to Boaz, well, she, you know, she arrived this morning, she's been working steadily since she arrived except for the short rest that she took when she took some shelter there was a little booth or something there they can go and have a bit of a break in the shade apart from that she was been working all the time now the thing is you know she could have been resting when Boaz arrived and he may not have known that she was there uh, she could have been spent tired weary gone home even before he arrived but it just so happened it just so happens that when Boaz arrives at that specific field, at that particular time, Ruth was there working. Neither of them planned it, but God did. Now at this time, Ruth was just a young believer. She had come to understand God and his law, and she was acting upon it. God had commanded, we saw it last week, Leviticus 19 verse 9, Deuteronomy 24 verse 19. That whenever the Israelites were reaping their harvest field, they were to leave some gleanings for the poor people to come and collect and the widows to come and collect and for the stranger to come and collect. And Ruth was all of those. And so she was acting in faith. And so too was Boaz. He was acting in faith, obeying the law, what God told him to do as a, as a man who was a, a farmer, that they would leave some gleanings for the needy people and when we commit our lives to the lord brethren and are seeking to do his will what happens to us happens by way of divine appointment not by accident the bible scholars have uh, seen that boaz here in this chapter is very much a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his relationship with his bride, the church. Ruth is like that lost sinner outside of the covenant family of God, bankrupt, no claim on the mercy of God. That's what we're like. But God has provided a way whereby this stranger can be brought into God's family uh, through a redeemer, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Boaz is like that. He's a wonderful picture, an illustration of Jesus, but we also see that Boaz is a wonderful example of grace, a wonderful example of that small but profound word grace. Now, the way that the Old Testament and the New Testament work together is this that there are many doctrines in the New Testament which are wonderfully illustrated in the Old Testament. That's certainly the case here. The doctrine of grace, which reaches its climax in the New Testament, is illustrated in many places in the Old Testament, but particularly in the life of Boaz and through the life of Boaz. And that's what we're going to emphasize this evening. Okay. Several ways 
that Boaz illustrates God's grace. Number one, Boaz took the initiative. Boaz took the initiative. In verse 5, he sees Ruth. His interest is aroused. He inquires about her. He wants to know her story. She was destitute and in need. He's a good man. He's kind. He's gracious. And from the very beginning, we have every reason to believe that Boaz loves Ruth. And therefore, he takes the first steps to meet her needs. Okay, that's what grace does. Grace loves first. Grace moves first to meet needs. And that's what God's grace did for us. God made the first move for us. God came to our aid, not because we did anything, not because we deserved it, but because he loved us and wanted us for himself. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. God took the initiative in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were spiritually dead. Romans 5 tells us that we were with complete without strength. Romans 5, 8, we were sinners. Romans 5, 10, we were enemies against God. And yet, in spite of all of that, Christ gave his life for us to meet our need of salvation. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone everyone to our own way. Romans 3 tells us, none that seeketh after God. In our own natural state, we don't seek God. We want to hide from him. But it's only as God moves towards us and God reaches out to us and God begins to work in our hearts, drawing us to himself, then our spiritual interest is aroused and the Holy Spirit does his pre-salvation work of convicting us of sin and opening our eyes to the wonder of Christ, that all the initiative is with him. Salvation is not an afterthought of God. He devised a plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. We didn't climb up to him. He came down to us. And he doesn't save us because we convince him to. No, he convinces us. He takes the initiative. In love, he sent his son. In grace, he draws us to himself. Which reminded me of another hymn, which is uh, on the back on the top right. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. While angels in his presence sang until the courts of heaven rang. He washed the bleeding sin wounds and poured in oil and wine and whispered to assure me, I found thee, thou art mine. I never heard a sweeter voice, it made my aching heart rejoice. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. Boaz was a gracious man. He loved Ruth. He took the first step to meet her needs. And in this way, he illustrates the grace of God. Secondly, Boaz spoke to Ruth. Boaz spoke to Ruth. In verse 8, we see that it was Boaz who first spoke to Ruth. Uh, she probably wouldn't have dared to speak to him. She being a destitute stranger, and he being a mighty man of wealth, the lord of the harvest. What right did this widow, this alien, have to address such a great man as Boaz? And yet Boaz interrupted his conversation with his foreman to speak to this poor stranger gleaning in his field. There was grace on his part. The other night I was watching the news, you may have seen it, um, there's a food truck and the people were standing in front of the food truck just getting their order. Uh, and then they were absolutely gobsmacked when they realised the person who served them their food or their coffee, whatever it was, was none other than Prince William. Uh, who then proceeded to talk to them. And the look on their faces uh, was uh, the sheer amazement. They couldn't believe it. Obviously, they'll never forget, never forget the day that the Prince of Wales served me and spoke to me. Now, I don't think any of us will ever have the privilege of being spoken to by a prince or a princess or a king or a queen. Probably never will. But don't be disappointed because God Almighty 
has spoken to us in Jesus Christ and through his word. Hebrews 1 verse 1 and 2 says, God in these last days has spoken unto us by his Son. And in spite of all that the world of sinners has done to the Lord, he speaks to us in grace. He not only speaks to us the message of salvation, he also gives us guidance that we need every day of life. Just like Boaz instructed Ruth, verse 8, you know, what he wants her to do, this is what you need to do. So the Lord instructs us through the wisdom of his word to direct our daily lives. He's the Lord of the harvest. He assigns us the place in the harvest field. Boaz spoke to Ruth. That was an expression of condescending grace and an illustration of what God in his grace has done for us. Thirdly, Boaz was not racist. Boaz was not racist. The marriage of Boaz to Ruth, and it did take place, does present some serious questions for those who think that the people of God in Old Testament times were, divide, uh, were uh, defined by the term Israelite race, a race of Israelites, uh, to whom and for whom interracial marriage was prohibited. That's a common view. And if that's the case, you know, how are we to view this marriage? Ruth was a Moabitess. That was common knowledge. She knew that. Everyone knew that. She was not an Israelite. She was a stranger. She was a foreigner. She was a Gentile. Verse 10. Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I'm a stranger? Now, at first glance, some of the commandments in the Pentateuch that prohibited Israelites and foreigners from getting married seems to give some substance to this view that you know God is defining his people in, 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 in racial terms and they weren't to mix with others. For example, in Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, the people of God poised to enter the land of Canaan are contrasted with the people in the land which they're going into and they are told this is what it says Deuteronomy 7 verse 3 neither shalt thou make marriages with them thy daughter thou shalt not give to unto his son nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son and so doesn't this seem to under underline the concern for racial purity among the people of God a principle which was developed uh, and became the apartheid policies of South Africa. Well, in an article on racism and the Bible, John Austin Baker says this, and I should have put it in your notes, but I'll just give it to you. It's just one sentence. This is what he says. When we turn to the Bible for guidance and wisdom in our problems about race, the first and most important thing that we have to absorb is that the Bible has nothing whatsoever to say to us. And by that he means race in our terms is not a concept which the Bible writers have any knowledge of. The distinctions in the ancient world were not about race in the sense of being you know, ethnic and colour distinctions. Rather... They're about culture, they're about religion, they're about worship, they're about faith. And this is the only kind of discrimination we see there in the Old Testament. That is cultural, religious, faith, worship, not racial. In fact, the prohibition I read to you in Deuteronomy about intermarriage with the Canaanites goes on to give a reason for it or you know, why it was prohibited. And it's not a concern about race, it's a concern about religion, it's a concern about faith. Intermarriage was forbidden, quote, for they shall turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. That's the issue. It's not about race, it's, not about race, it's about faith. It's about worship. It's about who do you believe in? Are you a believer in the one true God or not? That's the issue.
the people of God were to be known by their religious behavior, their religious distinctiveness, their faith in God. That was the, where the distinction was. It wasn't a question of race. And so we have this situation with Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is a Moabite. Boaz is a godly Israelite. Ruth understands she's a stranger, she's a foreigner. Boaz understands that as well, and yet he welcomes her, what? As a member of the family of Jehovah, verse 12. Under whose wings you've come to trust. That's the issue there. Ruth had become a believer in the Lord. Under whose wings you've come to trust. The insistence in the New Testament that the grace of Christ and the Christian faith is to transcend all racial barriers is based upon a fundamental conviction that God has made of one blood all nations of men. And the Christian gospel proclaims a universal saviour who shares a common humanity with us. And Jesus' own talking, conversation, we've had a lot of talks about in his conversation with the woman of Samaria, affirms this very, very point. She was not a Jewish person. Salvation is extended to her. And is this New Testament insistence, which is foreshadowed in this gracious attitude of Boaz, the Bethlehemite, towards Ruth, the widow from Moab. God is not racist. The gospel is for everyone. Fourthly, Boaz protected Ruth and provided for her needs. Boaz protected Ruth and provided for her needs. Notice in verse 8 that Boaz calls Ruth my daughter. He addresses her the same way in chapter 3 verse 10 and verse 11. Now, we might think that he calls her daughter because she's a relatively young woman and he's much older than her. Uh, we know that was the case. He was older, she was younger. That may account for one of the reasons why he calls her daughter. But this was, was also a term of endearment. But there's more to it than that. Boaz is actually undertaking to treat her like family. We see that King David did the same thing as this to Mephibosheth. 2nd Samuel chapter 9, he called him my son. And what he was doing in that, he was undertaking to care for Mephibosheth and provide for Mephibosheth as if he was his own family. The same expression is used by Naomi. Chapter 1 verse 11 and 12, chapter 2 verse 2. Undertaking to care for them, provide for them as family. And by Boaz using this expression, it arises out of a genuine sense of responsibility that he feels for Ruth, despite the fact that she's a Moabite. Like a loving father, he's offering this woman his protection and his resources. Verse 8, Boaz says, Hearest thou not my daughter? Or we could translate it, Listen carefully, my daughter. Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence. Don't leave this field, but abide here fast by my maidens. Verse 9, let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Now as we understand, there's basically two steps in the processing, process of harvesting grain back then firstly the reapers would cut down the stalks of grain with their sickles and then leave all the grain lying on the ground and then after them another group of workers would come along behind them they would gather the stalks in the bundle and then they would bind them into sheaves and it would appear that in Boaz's workforce the female workers did the bundling and the binding. And what Boaz says, he says, you stay close to those ladies, stay close to them. And so what Boaz was doing, he was giving Ruth the opportunity to gather more than 
typically a gleaner might gather. Typically a gleaner would wait till everyone's gone, everyone's gone, everyone's gone home and then they could come. But in this way, Ruth was given priority. Stay with the maidens who are doing the bundling. Start gleaning with them as they go along. They're gathering in the bundles. You do your gleaning. Notice too that Boaz was also, Boaz also informed Ruth that he would order his male workers not to interfere with her. Now in this context, it seems that the verb touch or touch not probably has a connotation of remove from the field. I'll tell my men not to remove you from the field. It was part of the job description of the young men to round up those people who were infiltrating amongst the bundlers before they had permission to do so. This was a common practice. You want to get in first. And so people would go and pretend to be part of the bundling people. That was part of the job description of the men, they were like security guards or a security force, making sure there's only authorised personnel in the field. But this is the point. Boaz made her authorised. Verse 15, he says to the men, reproach her not. At the end of verse 16, let her glean, rebuke her not. Leave her alone. Don't touch her. She has my blessing here. She has that. She's there with my permission. So Ruth was authorised to walk with the female servants who followed immediately after the reapers and in this way she had first chance to gather the best of the gleanings and she gathered all that she could. Drink also was provided for her, verse 9, and when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. That was part of the young men's job also to, to get the water for the workers. Go help yourself, the water is there. You have my permission. Furthermore, verse 16, Boaz even instructed his workers to deliberately drop some of the harvest so she could pick it up. Don't just do your normal job. Just, just, just you know, don't pick up everything. Leave some there deliberately, intentionally for her. But then in addition to that, verse 14 says, And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and drip thy, drip, dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat. That is, he reached for it and gave it to her. In other words, not only does Boaz sit down and eat with her, he personally handed her the food. Which is an amazing picture of God's grace. The master becomes a servant that he might show his abundant grace to strangers. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus was in the form of God. 2 Corinthians 8, he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He was a mighty man of wealth, but he, Philippians 2, humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, in order that he might save us, redeem us, bring us into his family, share the riches of his inheritance with us. Ephesians 2 tells us he shared with us the riches of his mercy and his great love wherewith he loved us. Ephesians 2 7 talks about the exceeding riches of his grace. And yes, they are unsearchable riches, Ephesians 3 8. And we as undeserving foreigners, aliens and strangers, we're called in Ephesians 2.12. Are now by virtue of Christ members of God's family. And God graciously and abundantly provides for us and protects us. But it's certainly a good illustration of God's grace. God's gracious provision. God's gracious protection. But the fact of God's provision and protection... It's also pictured here at the end of verse 12 where Boaz talks about the Lord under whose wings thou art come to trust. Boaz here gives us a picture of God as an eagle fluttering his wings over its young. And it's an image that conveys various aspects of God's gracious provision and God's gracious protection. Boaz was simply an agent of it. 
But that which Boaz showed was just an expression of God's gracious provision and protection. Let's just do this little study. Maybe you can write down some of these references. Deuteronomy 32, we have the Song of Moses, where Moses uses the same imagery. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12. As the eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth aboard her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead Israel. Similar pictures are drawn for us in the Psalms. Psalm 17, verses 8 and 9. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings from the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about. So God's wings there, wings describe a place of safety. But they also, it's also a place of refreshment. Psalm 36, 7 and 8. Psalm 36, 7 and 8. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the rivers of pleasure. It's a place of refreshment. It speaks of God providing for us refreshment. But it's also a picture of a place of stillness from the storm. Psalm 57 verse 1. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings shall I make my refuge until these calamities be overpass stillness from the storm sometimes it describes a place of help and relaxation psalm 63 verse 7 because thou hast been my help therefore in the shadow of thy wings will i rejoice sometimes the thought is of hope when circumstances are otherwise fear producing Psalm 91, verses 1 to 4. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers. And under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Safety, refreshment, stillness and peace, help, relaxation, Hope, all these words are associated with God's wings. It's a figure of speech. God, in his grace, takes the initiative. He speaks truth to our hearts. He brings before our eyes our own neediness. He stirs something within us, a longing for God who, can, who alone can meet all of these needs, our needs for safety and refreshment and stillness and hope and help and relaxation, our need for salvation. This longing for God is captured in the picture of the prodigal son, far from home. He comes to his senses. That's the grace of God working upon him, bringing him to his senses. He then turns his heart towards the father and prays in the words of Augustine, Lord, you have made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. And how satisfying it is for the alienated person, the person who feels alone and without hope in the world, to know that there's a God who cares for them, a God who rules over all things, a God who is gracious and will provide. A God that nothing shall separate us from. And Boaz took Ruth under the mantle of his protective care. And it's a wonderful illustration of grace. Fifthly, Boaz comforted Ruth. Boaz comforted Ruth. Ruth's response to Boaz was one of humility and gratitude. We see that in verse 10. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? She acknowledged her unworthiness she acknowledged his grace and accepted his grace. Look at verse 13. She said, let me find or continue to find favour or grace in thy sight, my Lord. For thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. 
She believed his gracious words and rejoiced in them and was comforted by them. She didn't need to worry about anything because the wealthy Lord of the harvest said he would take care of her. How did she know he would take care of her? Well, Boaz made a promise and she knew that he could be trusted. Notice that Ruth didn't look back at her tragic past, nor did she consider herself in her present sorry plight. She fell at the feet of the master. She submitted herself to him. She looked away from her poverty to his riches. She forgot all about her fears and rested on his exceeding great and precious promises and was comforted. All this happened to Ruth because of her faith in the God of Israel. Boaz came to understand her story. It didn't take long for news about her to travel through a little town like Bethlehem, verse 11. Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been fully showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. Boaz knew that Ruth had abandoned her home and her gods and had put her faith in Jehovah. She'd taken refuge under the shadow of his wings, verse 12. In verse 11, the word translated answered. And Boaz answered literally means raised his voice. Boaz is getting excited. He wants everyone to hear what he thinks about Ruth. He's not ashamed to be identified with her. She's trusted in the Lord. She's proven her faith by cleaving to her mother-in-law, by becoming part of the, the Israel of God. The, fra the phrase there, verse 13, spoken friendly, means spoken to the heart. Spoken to the heart. And that's a very, very good illustration of you know, the way that God speaks to us. The word of God comes from the heart of God. It goes to our heart. It gives us encouragement. It gives us hope. The word of God speaks to our heart. These precious promises that God has made. It gives us encouragement, gives us comfort, gives us hope. And if we listen to the words of the world, no doubt we'll get discouraged. But if we listen to the voice of God... Our heart will be encouraged. And what example, what an example it is for us to follow today. Sixthly, Boaz saw to it that she was satisfied, that Ruth was satisfied. Verse 14. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar, and she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. It was sufficient for her, and she left. Verse 17. She gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That is enough to feed herself and, to, and Naomi for about ten days. Very satisfying morning day's work. Verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw that she, what she had gleaned and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. These verses point not merely to, the, to sufficient provision for Ruth's needs. They these verses point to an abundant supply, an exceeding abundant supply. It's like the baskets of leftovers after the 5,000 have eaten. The point here is, that is the generosity of Boaz, which gave Ruth even more than she required. In verse 15, Boaz told her to glean even among the sheaves where the law actually said the, the people that glean could glean over on, only on the edges of the field. Boaz even tells a young man in verse 16, also 
let fall also some of the handfuls of, of purpose for her. Let loose grain intentionally be left for her so that there's more available for Ruth, for Ruth than she actually requires. And what we see here is Boaz's generous response that is going beyond just the strict requirements of the law. And in so doing, Boaz is showing, showing us something of the character of God. Yes, the law reveals the character of God. The law reveals that, that God cares for the widow and the fatherless and the poor people. The law tells us that, reveals something about the character of God. But Boaz shows us something additional about the character of God, which is more fully revealed to us in Christ, who, as the Apostle Paul said, is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. His grace is more than sufficient. The Lord Jesus Christ alone is able to fully satisfy the heart of the believer. If we seek for satisfaction anywhere else, we're going to find ourselves disobedient and dissatisfied. The lost world labours for that which doesn't satisfy. But full satisfaction is found in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hymn writer put it this way, another hymn to finish this evening, it's there on the back of the sheet. Well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah, I have found him, whom my soul so long had craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood I now am saved. Saved through his blood and saved by his grace. All right, let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for uh, the scriptures. Thank you for the way that the New and the Old Testament uh, being read together are uh, helpful for us. I uh, thank you that, uh, for the way that uh, Boaz, uh, in a sense, was a man uh, in a way before his time. Um, so much of the grace of God, uh, which we find uh, detailed uh, in the New Testament, is very evident in his life and we thank you for uh, helping us to understand a little bit more about you how gracious you are by uh, studying the the example of boaz this evening uh, lord i pray that uh, we would be uh, struck again uh, by how gracious you are to us it's almost as if we're the we're the ruth and boaz is doing this to us uh, lord su such is the grace of god towards us help us to be uh, struck again to find ourselves in this position uh, the uh, humble recipients of your manifold grace. And Lord, I do pray that uh, we'd not uh, just keep this good news to ourselves. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, you intend for all people to be saved. And uh, we pray that uh, we uh, would uh, be faithful in uh, sharing with others that which has so freely been shared with us. Freely we have received. Help us, Lord, to, to freely give. Help us to be, again, good stewards of the manifold grace of God, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.